Hey, before we get started, uh, I know uh, Friday's uh, decision by the Supreme Court left uh, people with a lot of questions. Uh, how does the decision of gay marriage affect churches? How does it affect our church? How, how does a Christian respond? How do you love God? How do you love your neighbor? There's a lot of questions in that. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to try to get a time where we can, rather than just talk at you, create an environment where we can talk with you and we can look at some teachings and we can talk about things and ask questions and, and try to answer questions the best we can and try to think through this together. And so we'll let you guys know. Know, uh, because I know a lot of you have questions. If they're burning questions, you feel free to grab me or, or call or email, and we can talk through this all together. Uh, but we want to create a place of discussion and conversation uh, with that. Uh, so with that in mind, we're going to look today at how important it is for us uh, to be a, a church that prays. And so would you join me as we, we pray for what God wants to teach us now? Uh, Lord, we, we've had, uh, from the start of this service, open hands, open hearts, Uh, open lives to the things that you want to show us. And so we pray once again uh, that with hearts open, with minds open, with eyes open, uh, with lives open, uh, we pray that you would impress upon us uh, your word, your teaching, the things that you want us to see from this moment uh, in in your church's life, uh, how we can learn from this this special night that they had, uh, the things that they learned, uh, Lord, may the lessons they learned, uh, may they uh, sink deep into our heart as well. We recognize that this is a time for the church to be prayerful, and we pray that this would uh, increase that in our, us. It would, it would lead us to become, not just with a, a mindset to be prayerful, but that we'd actually have prayerful lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, John Payton was a, a pioneer missionary to Vanuatu, and he tells the story of God's unique provision. He says uh, that uh, he and his wife lived in this little mission compost and uh, this outpost. And, and he said one night the, uh, this hostile tribe came and surrounded this little outpost that he and his wife were living in. Their, their goal that night was to burn it down and actually flush his, him and his wife out and kill him. And so as, the, as this tribe began to surround uh, uh, the, the outpost, uh, Peyton and his wife began to pray. And they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed all through the night. And when the sun came up in the morning, they noticed that the tribe wasn't there, and nothing had burned to the ground. And they kind of uh, thanked God for, for delivering them. But about a year later, it was very interesting, the chief of that very tribe came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so uh, John uh, turned to the chief, and he asked him, he said, hey, what happened on that night? And he says, what do you mean, what happened? He says, we had every intent of attacking, and, but you had all these men standing around guarding uh, the, the mission outposts. They, these man, men in shining garments and, and drawn swords. He said, My, the, we, were, we were terrified, and so we all left. And he said, it was only, he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. It was just my wife and I. And he, he insisted, no, there were men, hundreds of them, all around guarding and protecting you that night. And so, uh, John began to explain the unique way that God had answered the prayer of he and his wife that night and the unique way that God uh, impressed upon uh, them and, and came to their deliverance. And it's an interesting story to begin with. I know in some ways you're thinking, well, my life isn't that crazy, but in my own unique way, I feel surrounded. And it may not be by a hostile tribe, but it may just be by a group of, uh, of three-year-olds in poopy diapers who are home for the summer, and, and you're trying to figure out just how you're going to make it through the next three months of heat and, and exhaustion and all the different things. It may be work. 
and work is in a, a challenging place and finances are in a difficult place and you feel surrounded by the financial pressures of your life. Is my job going to make it? Can I pay our bills? How do I take care of our family? Uh, it may be that you are leaving today as a counselor for middle school kids at camp, and you're just wondering if you will come back alive. And there are a lot of different things going on in our people right now where we realize how important it is for us to be prayerful people. And, and however it may feel in your life, I just want to remind you today that God has given us this tremendous gift called prayer, where we Uh, listens to us as we cry out to him. He answers us in his own unique ways and he looks for our best and his best. And when it comes to prayer, I think you and I have discovered there are times in our lives where prayer comes really easy. You're about to make a a presentation to your company and your computer freezes up. Man, you pray and you pray hard. It's final exams. You pray and you pray hard. Uh, Your car's uh, leaking some mysterious fluid and the lights are coming on and you're trying to figure out how you're going to pay for it. You pray and you pray hard. Uh, But I think in this, we also begin to realize that sometimes while prayer seems to come easy because of the circumstances in our life, other times prayer is very difficult. Uh, Our prayers feel like they're just not going very far. And in fact, we might pray, but we might find that our prayers just feel kind of simple and they don't feel like they have much power behind them. And the ability to persist in prayer, to be earnest in prayer, to, to pray and to keep praying is difficult. And I want us to be reminded that Jesus encouraged his disciples to pray. He encouraged them from the very beginning. What we're going to see is as his disciples began to live out uh, his mission in the world, what they knew that they had was this tremendous resource called prayer, they, that they could turn to God, they could, that God was listening to their prayers, and that God was generous God with good gifts to give. And they turned to prayer because they needed to turn to prayer. They were facing things that you and I, most of us, have probably never faced in our lives. They were facing unique, serious persecution, Their lives were being threatened. And so they turned to prayer. And and, and you and I can see prayer simply as um, it's kind of a devotional habit. It's a nice way to connect with God, and it is. But do you believe that prayer can also be history-altering? That it can be world-changing? That it can be life-changing? That prayer can actually have an impact on the future? Jesus said, pray because your father is listening. Pray because your father is good. He has good things to give you. And so I want to give you a big idea as we watch this church. And and I think for us as a church, uh, we we will see this in this church, in this first church that, that we're looking at. But it's also a challenge for us to think about the kind of church that we are. And here's our big idea today, kind of the idea that will shape where we're going. But a prayerful church is the church that's going to see God move in mighty ways. A, a prayerful church will see God move in mighty ways. If, if we can learn to be a, a prayerful church and prayerful people, we will see God move in mighty ways. God will uh, uh, listens to our prayers. God moves in unique ways to the things. that We don't have to simply be passive about the future, but we can pray about the future. And in unique ways, God is, is waiting for us to ask and seek and knock about the things that are ahead of us. So as we watch the, this first church pray, let me, let me give you a, uh, a question to think about. Uh, and this is going to sound like a typical preacher thing to say, I know. Uh, but could it be that you are one 
prayer away from changing a life? Is that possible? Is it possible that you are one prayer away from changing a life? Your life, someone else's life, someone you care about, your family. Could it be that you're one earnest prayer away from changing where your life is right now? Now, before you think that's just being overly dramatic, let's read our text and decide if that's true or not. So I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. And we're going to read the uh, first 24 verses there. And uh, we've been going through the book of Acts since Easter. We've been looking at the the beginning of the the church and watching how the church began and the first Christians and what they were like, learning from their examples. And the book of Acts comes to this interesting uh, uh, break from chapter 12 to 13. And you're going to see, we're going to close our series here and we'll come back to the the second half of the book of Acts later and we'll look at the mission. Uh, But from chapter 13 on, it, it really begins to follow the Apostle Paul and his missionary journey and it's fascinating stuff. And we'll come back to that in another time where we can look at God's mission and how we join God in his mission. Uh, But we've been watching kind of the character of the church and what it's like to be God's church as he he begins it. And so as we're looking at this, we we, uh, read one of the the unique passages uh, that the first half closes with in chapter 12. Let's read it together. Starting in verse 1, we read, It was about the time that, this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword, and when he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. And so Peter kept in prison, uh, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where uh, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. And when she kept insisting that this was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described Uh, how the Lord had brought him out of prison. 
Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion about, among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with his people from Tyre of Sidon. And they were now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blaustus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. And on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and to flourish. Now, as we look at this uh, idea of being a prayerful church, of seeing God move in mighty ways, we're asking this question, uh, which I realize is a big question. Could it be that we're one prayer away of seeing God change a life? And for the first church, we see this first thing. If this is what they believed, they knew this, that prayer was the best place to start. We pray because it's the best place to start. And I know in, in, uh, in this situation, as you look at this, the beginning of this passage, you realize this is, they're in a difficult place. The persecution is just growing and mounting. The, it's really almost a display of, of how little strength they have in this moment. Their situation has gotten very desperate. In fact, if you add the Roman persecution to the, the Sanhedrin's persecution, now you have the king, King Herod, joining in the persecution. He takes James and mentions how James was the, was the brother of John. Uh, you look back in Jesus' ministry, he had taken Peter, James, and John, and he would spend special time with them, developing them to be leaders in the early church. James is taken by Herod and he's killed with the sword. It's an interesting move because to kill him with the sword really is to declare kind of a political move. It's to say in some sense that this king you guys are announcing will not reign. I am the king and I will reign. And as he begins to uh, see the favor that, that comes in this moment, that, that now he grabs Peter as well. And it's interesting, they're celebrating, the culture celebrating the Passover. This would have been a time for the people to really to celebrate the deliverance of God. And here are the very messengers of God coming to preach the climactic uh, deliverance that God is bringing. But instead, they're rejoicing in, in uh, their imprisonment and in their persecution. Now, notice what Herod does. He takes severe uh, precautions to make sure nothing's going to happen to Peter. He's not getting away. Uh, earlier, we've seen that, that the, the, all the disciples were, the apostles were, were arrested. And yet, once again, there was this dramatic escape. And so he takes, it was very common to take a, a prisoner, to chain him to one uh, soldier. But here we see Peter's chained to two soldiers. And then there's a door, and there's another door, and there's guards, and there's guards, and there's more guards. This is a very desperate situation. In fact, if you were in that little prayer circle and, and they said, hey, we're going to send you out. Go find out how it's going. How, wh what's going on with Peter? What can you find out? And you're the one who has to run over and you come and you find someone. You say, hey, what's going on in there? And they say, it's not good. They got Peter in there and, and I mean, he is, he is chained between two guards and they've got guards and they've got more guards and more. I mean, notice the, all the precautions being taken. You would have gone back and said, guys, it's not looking good. 
There's no escape plan. And nowhere in here do we see the fact that they tried to reason with the authorities or they tried to, you know, call their lawyers or any kind of thing. They, they realized that they had one option. And, and, and while we never want prayer to be our kind of final option, sometimes we realize that really prayer is our only option. And the disciples had no other option. And so it says they prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. In fact, what you see there is this, this term uh, that they earnestly prayed through the night. And the idea of earnestly is that they, they, they stretched their hands out to God and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And when you thought they were done praying, they kept praying. They prayed through the night. They prevailed in prayer, hands stretched out to God. Now I ask you, when you find yourself in trouble, What's your default strategy? When things aren't going your way, when, you, when your world is collapsing, when you're chained between two guards, what's your default strategy? Now, it's interesting. Scripture knows something about us, doesn't it? God knows something about us. See, our default strategy when life begins to crumble is to stress and to become anxious. Isn't it true? That when your world is falling apart, you begin to feel this anxiety building in your heart. And God says this to us in Philippians 4. He says, do not be anxious. It's almost as if he knows, I know exactly what you're feeling. Don't be anxious. But in every situation, no matter how big it is, no matter how small it is, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, knowing that God's listening, Knowing that God is working on your behalf, present your request to God. Every request, as big as it is, as small as it is, any size request you can bring to God. And God wants you instead to have peace. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. What do you do in trouble? God says, Don't be anxious. Don't stress yourself out. Instead, come to me. No matter how big it is, no matter how small it is, come to me. Pray. Let me take that anxiety and let me give you peace. Let me give you confidence, such confidence that you can be thankful that even though you may not see how I'm at work, you can just be confident to know I'm listening and that I am working in my own unique way. And these first Christians, in, in a situation which they had no control over, stretched out their hands in prayer, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed through this situation. We pray because it's the best place to start, and we pray because God is listening. We pray because God is listening. Often, often we're not confident God is listening, but the, the, the truth is, uh, many times we just don't see God working behind the scenes. Let me give you two pictures I think are great illustrations of this. There's a, in, in Genesis uh, 22, there is this moment where Jacob is, or Genesis 28, Jacob is alone in the desert. He grabs a rock to, to, to be his pillow. Imagine being in the dark, alone desert, and you have this sense, I'm alone here. And as he goes and kind of falls asleep, he has a vision. He sees a stairway to heaven. He realizes that in in a way, God has kind of pulled back the the veil to see he's not alone. That the presence of God is with him in this place. In 2 Kings, there's this great story of a a prophet named Elisha. And he has his servant with him. And they're surrounded uh, by this hostile army. 
And Elisha is showing this unusual calm in the situation. The servant is freaking out, as you would if you were surrounded. But Elisha says this to him in 2 Kings chapter 6. He says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You're sitting there alone. You can see the enemy all around you. You're doing the math. Me, you, you, me. One plus one equals two. This does not add up. And then Elijah prays. Look at his prayer. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. These aren't just ancient stories. Uh, This continues to happen in our world. My friend Beth uh, uh, just a, a great spiritual mentor uh, who was in our church, a leader in our church. I, I remember her telling the story. She was working in a library in New York, and she would take the train back and forth from New York to Connecticut. And she said one night it was late. She got on the train, and, and she walked into this empty car. And as she sat in this empty car, right before the door shut, this man jumped in, and he sat right across from her. And he was very agitated at something. And, and he was acting very bizarrely. And, and, and uh, as Beth would kind of look over at him, he'd kind of scream at her, what are you looking at? And he became very agitated through the train ride. And, and, and as they sat there alone in this car, she began to pray. She was nervous. She started feeling somewhat of a threat. He got, began more and more agitated. And, and really, she began to realize that her, her safety was in question. Now, she was praying out to God. And as this man became kind of uh, hostile towards her, uh, suddenly she said, this woman dressed in gray, came and sat right next to the man. And she kind of wondered where this had come from. And the woman sat next to the man, and, and she was, while she was scared of everything going on, she remembers, she says, I don't remember a lot about what she said, but I do remember this. The woman was trying to calm him down. And the woman was asking him, why are you terrifying her? Your father wouldn't like this. And she said the, the man began to weep. And she began to kind of calm the man down. And she calmed the man down. Uh, Beth said that the woman moved a couple seats down from, from the man. And after a little while, she says, I can see the man here and the woman here. She said, at one point, I looked over at the man. I saw that he had fallen asleep. And so she says, I, I looked over to t- kind of motion to the woman. Look, he's fallen asleep. She goes, I looked over and she was gone. And she says this from the experience. She said, uh, she said I've always wondered if she was an angelic visitation says, but whether she was or not, she was clearly a divinely sent protector for me. We pray because God is listening. We pray because our heavenly Father is near. Think about it. Jesus encouraged us to pray. And think about the prayer you saw in the video. It begins, this prayer Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven. Think about the wonderful thing that you, you think about God in that, just those beginning words. He is Father. You pray to him as Father. And, and it speaks of, of him being imminent and near and close and present. But he's our Father in heaven. That, and this idea of heaven is interesting because it, it, it communicates his majesty and his holiness not only is he near, but it's this, it's this uh, eternal, majestic God who has drawn near to us in prayer. I know the notion of heaven sounds far off. If I'm going to pray to a God in heaven, man, I've I got to figure out how to turbocharge my prayers. It's going to take forever for those prayers to get there. 
But instead, you have to think of it a little differently. Not only do we understand that the idea of he's in heaven as his majesty and his holiness, but for in the ancient world, the idea of the heavens was as close as the air we breathe. He's not in this far off, distant kingdom far away. He's as close as the air you breathe. This is why James, the brother of Jesus, he would write in his book in James chapter 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. David in the Psalms, in Psalm 139, says, Where can I flee from your presence? If I, wherever I go, you're there. And I know sometimes we struggle with prayer because we just, it just feels like God is too far away. But Jesus wanted you to know. He wants his disciples to know. Your father is listening. He's listening and he has good things for his children And see, this brings us to the last thing that we want to see is we pray not just because God is listening. We pray because God answers. We pray because God answers prayers. And this passage is interesting because there's this growing display of God's strength as really the source of the church. The the strength of our church, of that church, of any church is the power of God. Now you may be thinking for a second, okay, wait a second. The passage begins with James being killed. What about that prayer? It doesn't sound like that prayer got answered. And it's interesting because the passage and, and Luke, as he's writing this, seems to suggest that we don't always get the answers we're looking for. But notice what Luke does point out. He points out the faithfulness of the church. They stayed faithful to a sovereign God, a God who they believed was still in control over everything, a God who they believed could affect history. And so they earnestly continued to pray to him. And notice in verses 6 to 11, this amazing rescue plan that God puts in place. He sends the angel ahead. He releases Peter. They go through. The chains come off. The door opens. They go past the first guard, the second guard, the gate. In fact, Peter thinks he's seeing a vision until he realizes the miracle what God is doing. And it's interesting. Really, for everyone, it's almost like they're surprised by the answer. In some ways, it's almost a confidence for us. Luke actually kind of adds the comedy of all this, that that you and I realize that I I don't know how great the faith was that their prayer was going to be answered, and God yet still answered it. Notice this. Peter's surprised by the answer until he realizes it. He goes to the door. He begins to knock. And Rhoda, she comes to the door and sees Peter. She's so excited. She leaves him at the door. She goes inside. And they begin to have a debate over, over whether or not Peter's actually at the door. And Luke adds this to to the whole story. Uh, We get somewhat of a little laugh from it all. They're wondering whether or not Rhoda's in her right mind. Maybe it's his guardian angel. And all the while, Peter's just standing at the door saying, is anyone going to let me in? And when Peter comes in, you see they're astonished. God answered our prayer. And he begins to explain all that God did. And he instructs James. This is James, the brother of Jesus what to do, and, and, and moves on. And the passage then takes an interesting development, as we see. Because at the very beginning, we saw Herod and all his power and all his might. But notice the dramatic turn that takes as the passage comes to an end. Herod, after finding out that he's been duped, after finding out all this stuff, in kind of a display somehow of power, has all his guards executed. And when Herod should have humbled himself before God, his pride continues to increase. He goes back to Caesarea. And and as he's uh, addressing the crowd there, uh, what history tells us, he had the silver coat. 
and it's shown in the sun, and so there's this bright display, and he's speaking, they want to flatter him because they want uh, food from him, and they begin to flatter him. He's like a god, and because he receives it this way in his pride, uh, we f- see here that he is struck down and dies. In fact, history tells us that he began to complain of abdominal pains, and within five days, he had died. Now compare that with verse 24. One king who thought he had power with verse 24, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. When, when everything, all hope seemed to be lost at the beginning of the, the story, what we see is as the story comes to its end, that the word of God continues to spread and flourish. God will fulfill his plan and no person and no power will ever be able to stop him. Amen. Ephesians 3 speaks to you about why you pray. That Do you realize that, that your prayers, whatever you hope for, whatever imagine, whatever you think you could pray for, that God is able to do immeasurably more than any of those things. Ephesians 3 says to him, who is able to do immeasurably more, and that word immeasurably is, it's really two words. It, it, it is exceedingly, abundantly. He's able to do exceedingly, abundantly more, immeasurably more than anything you could ever pray for, anything you ever asked for, anything you could ever imagine happening. He is able to do that. And that power is at work in you. And that power is at work in us as the church throughout all generations. And so let me ask you, what locked door, what locked prison door are you facing today? Where is it that that you find yourself locked behind a prison door and chained to guards and thinking there's just no hope for me in this situation? What is it that you are facing right now where you just realize, I have no idea how I'm going to make my next step, how we're going to get out of this. And, and I realize for many of us, on Sunday, we're filled with a, a passion to worship and to serve God. And then Monday through Saturday comes, and, and, and we, we uh, live life in our own wisdom, in our own strength, in our own power. And we want our lives, our, our, we feel like our, the guidance of our life is dependent upon our own wisdom. The, the strength of our life is dependent upon the, our own power that we can muster up. But the first church understood something. They understood to be devoted to prayer. And how do we become people devoted to prayer? Prayer is challenging. It's a habit that you have to cultivate. It's a, it's a discipline that you have to develop. It's a skill you practice. And, and the reality is this. The way you get better at praying is by praying. And the more that you pray, you'll realize that there are times where you're going to have to be earnest in prayer and, and you have to pray through something. In fact, you're going to have moments in your life, much like this night, where you're going to realize that you are going to pray and keep praying and pray some more and you're not going to be, you just know you cannot give up praying for this. You're going to knock on the door until your knuckles are raw. You're going to cry out through the night until your voice is gone and your tears are all dry. You're going to continue to pray and plead with God. 
And there's things that we'll face that will be much like this night that they had. We will pray and we will pray and we will stretch our arms out and we will continue to pray and seek God's answer and trust his answer. We will pray not just passively to receive whatever happens, but we'll pray because we believe God wants to do something. And see, the shape of your prayers is going to be developed by the shape of, uh, of your God and what you believe God is like and how he is. I love what uh, A.W. Tozer writes. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. How do you think about God? Is he a big God or is he a small God? How do you think about him? Mark Batterson writes, a low view of God and a high view of God are the difference between scaredy cats and lion chasers. Scaredy cats are filled with fear because their God is so small. But lion chasers know that their best thought about God on their best day falls infinitely short of how great God really is. The shape of your prayers often is developed by the shape of your God. And I want to end our time together trying to shape your view of God with one last thing. We're going to end our service uh, in, in taking communion together. And in communion, uh, Jesus on the last night of his life, as he was having this, this dinner with his disciples, he, the end of a meal, he took bread and he broke it. And he handed it to each of the disciples. And as they shared this meal around, as they shared the bread around, he said, this bread represents my body, which will be broken for you. Take and eat and remember me. And then he took a cup and he passed it. And the cup, he said, this cup represents my blood, which is being shed for you. For the forgiveness of your sins, take and drink. And as you do so, remember me. And for 2,000 years, as the church has gathered, we, we take bread and we share it among each other. We take a cup and we share it among each other. We remember what it is that Christ did for us. But the scriptures say this, that as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. And so as the, uh, the tray comes to you, there's two cups. They're, they're double cupped. And I want to encourage you, grab both cups. And as you hold those cups, as you take it apart and you see the bread and the cup, I want you to be reminded of something. As you prepare to take the bread and the cup, as you're ready, first remember this. Remember this, that God is for you. He is for you. And there's no way that he could demonstrate that better than for you to know that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Wouldn't it have made sense to, to scrap the plan of humanity based on our rebellion, but instead God put in place the most dramatic rescue plan ever and, the, and a, a rescue plan that was completely at his cost. And so when you hold those elements, when you prepare to take those elements, remind yourself, God is for me. Why do I pray? Because God is for me. And why do I pray? Because God is with me. We, we take these elements, we remember his death until he comes again. When Jesus was ready to leave, he said, it is good that I go because if I go, then the Holy Spirit will come. And what we've been seeing through the, the, the power of this series is the, the gift of the Spirit. As you came to faith in Jesus Christ, what, what God has done is placed his very Spirit in your life. And, and you have the presence of God living within you even right now. And so you are not doing this life alone. And Jesus will continue to work and you will continue to be called to join him in this work until he comes in glory. And so as you take these elements, remind yourself 
not only of what he did, but what he's doing and what ultimately he will do. He is with you. Why do you pray? Because God is for you and because God is with you, because God listens and because God answers. And so any of you who would proclaim that Jesus is for you, the one who came for you, and you believe in what he did for you, and you're putting your faith in that, you're trusting him and him alone to save you of your sin and forgive you of your sin. If you, if you have that faith, we invite you. You don't have to be a member of Beach Point. We invite you to take the bread and the cup and let this be a moment to worship and to be reminded of why we pray. In fact, there's going to be a, a small prayer that's up here. It may help you as you pray. Just to remember that why we want to be a prayerful people. That we're reminded that, that God is there for us in our trouble, in our pain, in our brokenness. And that by holding these elements and taking these elements, we see it full well again. That God is listening to our prayers and that we are loved more than we will ever hope or imagine. And so let's bow together as we prepare. And so, Lord, we receive these elements as an opportunity. We take them by faith, proclaiming the death of our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Uh, We remember, Jesus, what you did for us. You broke your body, you shed your blood, uh, that we may have life by faith in you. And we, by taking these elements once again, we uh, confess our faith that you did this for us, and through this we have life, we have salvation, Uh, Your spirit now dwells within us. And so we pray that once again our our lives would be filled uh, uh, by the the knowledge of of, uh, all that you've done, filled with the, the power of your Holy Spirit. And so bless each person as they remember and as they remind themselves that you are for them, that you are with them, that you listen, that you answer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take and eat as you're ready.